and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And we are in the midst of a theme month. It's continuing to march on down the way because this is week three of Circus Month. It's Circus Month! Yes! How are you feeling so far, Dan? Are you holding up? Are you enjoying this theme month? I've been enjoying this theme month more than I maybe initially expected to. It's been enlightening and fun to visit this this setting it turns out to be a, a very uh round and malleable setting thematically three different movies three very different angles and spirits and I, i've been getting a lot out of it how about yourself uh same you know each time I've been pleasantly surprised by how well the movie fits the theme, especially this week, because the film that we will be covering this time around is the David Lynch-directed film The Elephant Man from 1980. And I knew a couple things about this movie, but it wasn't much. And all I had watched of it before picking it was uh, a couple months back, I saw that it was up on Amazon Prime Video, and I hit play, and the opening credits are just a black screen with white text, but it's creepy carnival music behind. And it said it was directed by David Lynch, which I don't think I knew before. But I hit play, it said David Lynch directs The Elephant Man, while it's playing this creepy music in the background. And I hit pause... And I thought, I'm going to save this for the podcast. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I actually watched this movie once in college. Uh, it is one that I had been meaning to go back. Actually, I watched it when I didn't know who David Lynch was. And so that wasn't really interesting or meaningful to me. And I've since become well aware of who he is and what his reputation is and his style is. And so I was actually quite excited to go see him make a fairly conventional film from what I remembered of it in in the sense, at least in the context of David Lynch's filmography. Right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what other David Lynch films or media projects have you seen? I've seen Mulholland Drive. I, I had seen this before. And the big one is I have seen... All of season one and about two thirds of season two of Twin Peaks. The second half of season two of Twin Peaks, David Lynch was much less involved and it very much loses its momentum um, to the point that I could not convince my wife to continue watching it with me. Or maybe we just kind of stalled out on it and we're not particularly excited to watch it. But that to me is like the thesis the the mission statement for what a david lynch film is in terms of its themes and the things that just makes it sort of off kilter like you're in a weird fantasy land when you're in his mind mulholland drive i saw which i thought was amazing but that one is just far weirder and creepier than even twin peaks oh interesting so 
I have had Twin Peaks recommended to me by multiple people and have just struggled to get into it. I find it very strange, which I guess is the point, and to some people is probably the appeal. But it was what I've seen of it, which again is not too much, is kind of hit and miss. Certainly it has a vibe. And I've also seen Eraserhead, David Lynch's first film. And that one is very weird, very disturbing. And I thought it was interesting to consider because The Elephant Man was his follow-up to Eraserhead. Eraserhead was 1977, and The Elephant Man came out in 1980. So I I think Eraserhead is feature-length, so this is not uh, his feature debut. But I think Elephant Man was like his first um, studio movie and his first like widely released feature film. Right. I think it's a scenario where someone made a like really low budget, lo-fi movie that got enough creative acclaim and attention of a studio that they're like, eh, we'll take a risk on having this guy make a studio film and see if something interesting comes out of it. Yeah, it's like uh, George Lucas making THX 1138 or what have you. Right, and then being given American Graffiti. Exactly. Or I feel like there's a lot of them, like the 500 Days of Summer guy went on to make the Spider-Man series. Like It's a pretty common pipeline, these kind of indie projects. Mm-hmm. Although I think Eraserhead was even lower budget than something like 500 days of summer. But I definitely see some connective tissue between Eraserhead and this movie. The Elephant Man is sort of the slightly more audience-friendly version, but there's kind of the same message of, like, corrupted conception, that the way a baby is, like, conceived and brought to term can like doom the world and certainly create a weird malformed infant. If you know one thing about Eraserhead, you might know about the Eraserhead baby. Uh, So have you seen Eraserhead, Dan? I I think you have not, right? That's correct. Although I've been wanting to pick it for this podcast because there are three big cult horror movies from 1977 and we've watched two of them on our podcast discussed two of them on our podcast and i was hoping to get in the third which would have been Eraserhead, but maybe we can at some point down the line but it is not one that i've seen the other two by the way of course are house and suspiria which was our very first episode so we're getting there um but Eraserhead follows this guy who has a baby I think out of wedlock and it comes out. uh, So there's a lot of strange images in this movie. So it's like hard to even say what's real, but the gist is that he winds up with this deformed baby that he then has to care for. And it's not really clear if it's even human. There has been debate to this day over how they actually made this baby like the prop they used for the film. I think it's a cow fetus, but it's just really weird looking. And it's wrapped up in bandages. It kind of looks like a worm. It's like a worm with a cow head. 
and it's always making this inhuman howl. And it, I don't know, it, it's just kind of a commentary, I think, on like, there there could be all sorts of different readings on this, but it's like childhood as a burden on the parent. You know, you just have to carry the weight of your actions, and that's what happens when you have a child. It's like, it's something that you brought into the world and now have to deal with the consequences of that. I think one theme that recurs in a lot of David Lynch's work is the two-faced nature of things in the sense that many things are both very good and wholesome, but also like just right on their fringes or right on their other side or right some slightly alternate version of it are very messed up or deformed or just weird and and i don't know and like you see that in obviously in elephant man like the the interplay between the grotesque and the wholesome and that's very much there in twin peaks and it sounds like it's probably there in eraserhead too where you have this an infant is like the most pure creature but if there's something wrong with that that seems like it plays with that theme as well right so I came into this movie not knowing too much about David Lynch other than I had seen Eraserhead and a bit of Twin Peaks. Uh, but I did know a fair bit about the real deal Elephant Man, who was a man by the name of Joseph Merrick, although a lot of media calls him John Merrick. That's what they call him in this movie. And he was an anatomical oddity in the Victorian era. I think it was around the 1860s. Oh, born born 1862, died 1890. So he was only 27 when he died. But he had some condition, and there's still speculation to this day over what exactly it was that he had that like made his bones grow irregularly and his skin grow irregularly. It's kind of like having everything be a tumor basically just he's got all this bits and pieces growing and hanging off of him to the point that he like couldn't really even get around very much and part of his life he spent being exhibited in freak shows as the elephant man so in a sense this is another biopic dan what did you uh what did you think of that (laughs) i actually think it's a little bit more of a conventional biopic than anything we've watched since The Founder, certainly more so than Greatest Showman, although it hits some similar and expected biopic beats. But I think it's a little more interesting than your normal biopic, and it didn't bother me as much as one does for reasons we could talk a little bit more about. Um, There was still some stuff that I was like, uh, (laughs) I feel like I'm being preached to and told a filtered version of a history to make me feel a specific thing about a historical figure and the theme that the they want this to represent. And it's certainly better than some of the ones I've seen, but it definitely is a biopic. In fact, it was even more of a biopic than I remembered. I think I texted you that it's kind of a biopic, but it doesn't really operate like one. But I actually think it basically does operate a lot like a biopic. Right. I'll say I, I this is one of the first movies that I've actually watched twice for the podcast. And 
the first time I was paying more attention to like the stylistic things and the Lynchian weirdness. But then the second time I watched it, I was like, you know what? This is a pretty conventional biopic. I think I just have to be wary going forward of the movies, <laughs> you know, if I pick something like the founder or the greatest showman or the elephant man, it's, it's going to be a story of some historical figure that they don't just want to come out and say, uh, PT Barnum, the movie or Joseph Merrick, the movie <laughs> or, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the movie. Right. Or if the is in the middle, like walk the line. Yeah, just got to watch out for the. <laughs> Last episode, we toyed with the idea of a recurring circus topic question to discuss. I think we can kind of sprinkle our talk about this question in throughout the episode or, you know, deliver a verdict at the end. But last time we talked about the ethical ramifications of exhibiting animals at the circus. Now I wanted to talk a little bit about something that we've kind of brought up uh, a little bit during our Greatest Showman episode, maybe. But the ethics of human exhibits, uh, so-called freaks, or just uh, sideshow oddities. And I think the Elephant Man is a complex example because I, I think maybe one somewhat positive evidence point you could be able to point to is that you know this was something that went on back in a time when perhaps these people would not have been able to make a living otherwise or would have struggled with that i was reading through a biography of joseph merrick just a, a condensed one and it was talking about how like as his hands grew really big, he couldn't, like, do anything with them anymore. And his, like, lips kind of grew closed, so he, like, couldn't talk anymore. So just about anything that you could do to do a job was becoming impossible. Right. Yeah, I think I agree with that, that high-level point to some extent, because... You're right that like this basically was an avenue of employment for these people. And I think the flip side of that is it's even still something you kind of hear about today, but this movie really depicted it as kind of especially so in the 1860 or 1890s England. But if you are employed for performance and entertainment, particularly people who uh, have disposable income are kind of throwing their money at to be entertained or titillated or uh, shocked by something, then it is like a very slippery slope to that leading to exploitation. And I mean, that's just been in the news today with Britney Spears. It's, it's something that's never gone away. Yeah. At its face, I would say it's exploitative. You also, like with Britney Spears, you got to think about, you know, who actually gets the money. Right. Is it your, is it the performer, so-called, or is it the caretaker? There was just a Jeopardy question in the last couple of days about the Jackie Coogan Law, which was named for Charlie Chaplin's co-star in The Kid. And he was a child actor who experienced basically his parents getting all his money. 
even though he was the one earning it. And nobody on Jeopardy knew that that was Jackie Coogan they were talking about. Uh, but I got it right because <laughs> we're cinephiles here on this podcast. So Right. Maybe not Cinemaniacs, a, a documentary about people who take cinephilia to the next level. Yeah, people whose whole lives are dominated by movies, apparently. I think we got to check this out. I just yeah. read a blurb about it in the last couple of days. So uh, keep an eye and an ear out, and you might see that one pop up someday. Back to the the topic at hand. I, th- I think this actually makes for very interesting counter-programming to The Greatest Showman in a lot of different ways. But one main plot thread and theme of Greatest Showman is essentially telling the story of the quote-unquote freaks, the people who are largely have genetic or developmental anomalies who are exhibited for the entertainment or whatever you want to call it for the masses. But it's done so in a very empowering way, where like this is the way that they are empowered by claiming this and like embracing that version of their identity. Whereas... There is some nuance to it, but this film is much more about how that whole racket is like not exactly slavery, but like kind of what you were talking about, how this is a thing where they're being forced into these kind of rough circumstances where the people who are profiting are not the performers themselves, but these savvy business people, people like P.T. Barnum, honestly, although, you know, we've as we talked about there has been evidence that most of the people who were performers for, for Barnum had a good relationship with him, even if he designed many of his acts to be exploitative. Yeah. I mean, it just tends to favor the, the, the organizers and the promoters and the people like that. Slavery with extra steps, as they say on Rick and Morty. <laughs> uh, I'm, but I'm glad we've, su- we've seen both ends of it and like not watch a glamorized uh, musical version of it, too. <laughs> Yep, I agree. Uh, This movie, The Elephant Man, opens with creepy carnival music, as I said. Always a good move. It drew me right in. Yeah, I I like this theme a lot, like the actual music theme. And I've spun it a few times apart from the movie in the last couple of days. It's like... On a calliope. Very creepy. I love it when a opening music just gets you in the zone. Sometimes, like, you know, you, you listen to the opening music and you just kind of know you're going to enjoy the movie. That happened with me in The Usual Suspects, too. I love the opening theme of The Usual Suspects. And the first time I watched it, I knew I was like, uh, I got a good feeling I'm going to like this movie because it's got a good opening theme. Oh, well, how does that one go? Uh, I don't have it on the top of my head. No, I, I did enjoy that one. That's another one like... Uh, the Adventures of Cavalier and Clay a couple episodes ago that uh, I tracked down on your recommendation, and I did get something out of it. And in the opening scene of the movie, we see a scene that I was familiar with because I knew the Elephant Man story, but it's this like surreal sequence of a woman getting knocked down by an elephant. This is one of the handful of moments in the film that felt like extra lynchy and the surrealism kind of bleeds through. Most of the movie is pretty uh, conventional theatrically. 
uh, at least in terms of visuals or just, you know, moment A being followed by moment B by followed by moment C. But here we, I don't know how to describe the effect, but there's like lazy frames. It's like uh, one frame kind of bleeds into the next. The woman is like kind of, she's got like fringes. She's like hazy at the edges. And she's moving with kind of like a dropped frame rate, like shuddery and stuttery as this elephant is bearing down on her. And the significance of this is that this is supposedly how the elephant man came to be, that he would have developed normally, but for this traumatic event during his development in the womb. And this was a concept known as maternal impression. You know that Victorian medicine is always good for weird theories. This was one such, that things that happened to the woman while she was pregnant would imprint and leave a lasting effect on the development of the baby. Right. I, I think this opening scene, if you'll even call it a scene, which which I really liked... Now, now that I kind of know David Lynch's wavelength, I'm able to embrace the madness and somewhat incoherence and like expressionistic, emotional, dreamlike feeling it's supposed to evoke a little bit more than probably I did in college when I was like, what is going on? I don't understand what's happening. Tell me something that's in a film's grammar that I understand. But I think another interesting thing here that kind of also reflects on the way that David Lynch tells stories, or at least when he has these dreamlike sequences that hits on a lot of different things at once. One thing I thought is that, um, so obviously it's about a pregnant woman and there was something sexual in like the way that she was kind of like stuttering and almost like moaning and screaming. And I think it was like supposed to be a sort of, I don't know, representation of conception which is something you've brought up as kind of like a theme this movie but like just gone mad and gone awry and gone evil and the juxtaposed image of the elephant of course evoking some wild creature some something inhuman not necessarily triggering that but like being linked to that visually in our thoughts and our emotions going forward no i think that's insightful you know elephants are bestial they have Trunks, I think you're onto something here. Certainly it's jarring and disturbing. We are jolted back to what might be more expected of a conventional film in the next scene, when things are just a, a little more conventional, a little more what's to be expected. And we see a young Anthony Hopkins as a surgeon named Frederick Treves, who is at a carnival. And this is where I wiped my brow and said, whew, because things are very circusy here. We have calliope music, of course, very important. Uh, but also we've got some more of these like old fashioned automatons. Uh, there's this crazy wild laughter and these like spinning signs with spirals painted on them. And something we haven't mentioned yet is this whole movie is in black and white. And this is one scene I really, really wanted to see in color. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
I agree. One, if you compare it to our comments on Greatest Showman, which had really bright and engaging colors, uh, this certainly does not have that. It's a very, it, it's a pretty black and white. I, I really liked it, and I think it kind of fit the moodiness. But I agree, there's certainly something lost in the circusy elements of it. Although I might argue it has a thematic purpose in like making it seem grayer and murkier and less of like a fun place. I agree. And it also is another thing that connects it to Eraserhead, which was in black and white as well. Uh, but this moment specifically, I just want to know what color yeah. those like spinning signs were. Oh, and there's like freak show posters too. I love a good freak show poster. If I could get like a custom freak show poster of myself, I, I would. I would commission that. Um, but Treves, Anthony Hopkins, is like walking through the back alleys of this carnival between the tents. And he wanders into a sideshow tent where we see a couple different freak performers. There's a bearded lady. There's like an albino family or something. Um, but then he's inching his way towards this sign for the elephant man. Like just as he's walking up, the act gets shut down because apparently it's too disturbing. You know, it's going to have a bad effect on morale and it's just too taboo to actually show. And Treves encounters the showman who's presenting the elephant man behind the curtain. And this is a shady guy named Mr. Bites. Not actually an historical figure, but he's kind of a composite of the various showmen who exhibited the elephant man. It provides us a very good villain for this film. But at this point, Treves just kind of says, oh, shucks, and walks away again. Doesn't get to see the elephant man at this point, and so neither do we. Uh, something this movie is really going to draw out is when do we finally get to see the elephant man? Uh, that's the big reveal that they're saving, and they're going to kind of give it to us in dribs and drabs. If you've seen the DVD cover, it's got the elephant man in like a Jawa or sand person costume from Star Wars, like completely covered up in a burlap sack. Uh, he has this hat that's like a beekeeper head piece just all a bunch of fabric draped over him so you can't see anything yeah th this movie i agree i actually was not sure the first time i watched it back in college like are is it ever going to give us a crystal clear look at it or is it going to keep doing this thing where it's either concealed behind something or he's in the shadows to just amplify our curiosity and fear yeah, so then Treves is back at his day job where he's a surgeon and he's working on this mangled guy uh, that the surgeons are discussing was the victim of a machine accident. So we know now that this is the dawning of the industrial age because people can get pulled into machines now. I, I spent my day uh, doing OSHA training and getting my certification for that and talking about, uh, you know, how you got to have your fall harness and you got to 
take all the precautions if you're going into a confined space. And of course, none of this was the law of the land back in Victorian England when you could like send children into coal mines and stuff. Uh, a lost age. <laughs> but soon enough, Treves makes his way back again to the exhibit at the fairgrounds and approaches Bites and essentially says, hey, if I give you a bunch of money, can you show me the elephant man, even though they say you're not supposed to show me the elephant man? And of course, Bites is a greedy, shady guy, so he says, yes, come into the tent and I'm going to show you the elephant man. He gives his showman's spiel, his patter, telling the story that we saw in the opening shot about the mother, while she was pregnant, getting startled by the elephant. And this is told pretty well. Like, I thought Bites was doing his stuff here. This, He's a adept showman in as much as he's got this speech down. I agree. I think it was an important scene because... It conveyed to the the viewers that this Bites character, we mostly see him at his pathetic and needy and domineering, but he actually brought something to the circus business. And like, there's something in him that allowed him to excel in this business, um, even if it is compromised by other unsavory elements of his personality. Definitely. And after he tells this tale and Treves is engrossed in it, Bites pulls back the curtain and we see like just a little bit of the elephant man's head, his big bulbous head that's just all over the place. And then we cut to this long shot of Treves just taking in the shock of seeing the elephant man for the first time. And, like, tears running down his face by the end of it because it's such a shock. Uh, Treves passes Bites some more money to take the Elephant Man out and over to his job at the college. Or Most of the time he's working at this hospital. So the idea is that he's going to check um, Merrick as we find his name to be, uh, Joseph Merrick, the Elephant Man. He's going to bring him over to lecture on anatomy and examine the Elephant Man in front of the other doctor colleagues. I thought it was kind of interesting that Treves is a doctor, but most of the characters call him Mr. Treves throughout the whole movie. <laughs> I don't know if that struck you at all. It did. It just, I figured it was like one of those weird British things where certain people can call certain people different titles that I are different from what I know. So I didn't think too much about it because it's pretty clear he's kind of a young-ish doctor who's like very well respected and ambitious and definitely a full-on doctor. Right. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins... Whether he's eating your face or not, he always plays these like very educated characters, very urbane. Right. And with a certain intensity, too. Like something going on behind the surface, definitely. Uh, but as Treves is setting up this arrangement that he's going to take Merrick and 
show him off to his other doctor friends, basically. Bites says, we understand each other now. <laughs> More than money has changed hands here. It's it's like a real recognized reel between freak exhibitors that, you know, Treves is ostensibly this high-minded intellectual guy, but he has been bitten by the bug. Uh, at one point, Bites calls the Elephant Man the greatest freak in the world. And this is Anthony Hopkins realizing that as well. And there is twisted allure to that. Sure. That the doctor sees potential to make a name for himself by bringing this guy into his his uh, circle. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, I mean, as I watched the movie this time, that kind of parallel is like strongly a theme in this movie. The way that Anthony Hopkins character, although we like instinctually and emotionally feel positive towards him, actually bears in many ways some resemblance to the other carnival host, freak show host, exhibitor. In this first like third of the movie, there's a lot of walking down dark hallways. Lots of people like g walking through fabric tents and gas lit alleys and all of it has this like soundscape that i would think of as very lynchian lynch-esque where it just there's always this like disturbing hum in the background and like this roaring and hissing sound just disconcerting background noise almost like a droning yeah, you know, the gas lights hiss and there's like engines whirring and pounding. And especially once the elephant man is in the mix walking around, he has this horrible raspy breathing. There's like. So one interesting thing is David Lynch is the first credited sound engineer on the film. So the observation that it is distinctly Lynchian is true because I mean he was the the guy doing the sound um I think in general the first third of this movie is shot a lot more like a horror movie and does a lot more to make you feel disoriented particularly in the way it shoots John Merrick but just in general it's like setting up this ambiance of like this thing that we fear before we gradually kind of shed that fear. But the film is making us kind of feel that in the same way that the characters are. Yeah, and I think it does a good job of it. This whole story is kind of like Joseph Merrick opening up and coming into his own as it goes along, but he starts out very veiled and we don't know anything about him. Right. Uh, we do get a scene where... He's exhibited before the learned uh, professors and medical students and things at this big lecture hall. Uh, but in this scene, we just see the silhouette of Merrick through a curtain as Treves is spinning him around and saying, Behold, the pendulous growths! And 
I thought this was pretty effective, like, because you can clearly see that he's very messed up behind the curtain, but you're also imagining what is back there. Yeah, I agree. So it's like a happy medium. Well, I also think it's really good in further emphasizing this idea that the Anthony Hopkins character is a freak show exhibitor in his own right. Absolutely. So we get a little bit of interaction between Treves and Merrick here, uh, but Treves and pretty much everybody else assumes that as part of all his deformities, Merrick must also have mental disabilities. And so everyone kind of hopes he can't comprehend what's going on and, and what his existence has been. Merrick gets sent back to the fairgrounds and Bites starts beating him for pretty much no reason when like I think the first time I watched it I kind of took it to be almost like the elephant man is cheating on Bites you know he's stepping out with another freak show <laughs> master right uh, but that doesn't make any sense because Bites sent him with that guy in exchange for money. So, I don't know, I, I almost felt like a scene was missing the second time I watched it. Because it's like as soon as he walks in the door, he starts whooping on him. My my take on this is, it, it is jarring. I think it reveals the extent of just how pathetic Bites is and how he uses these the freaks or whatever you want to call them that he's in charge of and like he uses them to feel better about himself and to take out his impulses and for whatever the impulse was at that moment maybe it was something like uh what you said or maybe he was just feeling bad and drunk at that moment and just takes it out on the thing that he thinks is the ultimate inhuman freak but the result of this is that now Merrick is all beaten up and he needs a doctor for real. And so back he goes to Treves at the hospital. And now he's going to be there on a longer term basis. So Treves obviously has got no problem with this. He kind of desires to have the elephant man to study him some more and learn what he can learn and get the uh, perhaps exposure that he can out of associating his name with this case. And so Merrick tape, Merrick takes up lodging in a room in the attic where he'll be away from other patients at the hospital. There's a scene early on, uh, once Merrick is staying at the hospital that I liked a lot, but I wasn't quite sure what to make of where it's down in the hospital lobby and just all hell is breaking loose because there are these two women fighting. And I don't know if they're deformed in some way or they're just like psych cases or something, but their faces are covered with like blood and dirt and they're just like making witch noises at each other. They're going like, ah, la, 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 and like clawing at each other while people are trying to wrench them apart. And I don't know, it just really adds to the disconcerting uh, horror movie vibe of this first act 
that we've been talking about. I labeled this the freak fight in my plot notes. <laughs> I like that. That's pretty funny. And uh, while Merrick is settling in, there's this one hospital employee. He's like an orderly, like a janitor type guy with no actual medical role in everything. But he has a key to the hospital. And he hits on the idea that he's going to be an exhibitor. Because he has got access to the Elephant Man after hours, and he's going to start bringing people in to see him at night. Um, I think he is the first character, at least he's the first one I noticed, that uses the phrase or a variation of the phrase, my friend, when referring to the John Merrick character that I think is intentionally in there and very illuminating just the different way that these kind of relationships have weird wrinkles and contours to them. And the fact that they all refer to each other as my friend, despite that it's, it's a very interesting piece of writing that I found compelling. I did get tipped off that that is something to look out for when you're watching this movie on something I read on Letterboxd before I, I watched it, and I was glad I did because that, that is striking once you're looking out for it. So if you watch it a third time, Brian, I encourage you to look for that screenplay motif. Oh, I will. And you're right. Uh, this guy, who I think his name is Jim, is also kind of the first person to address Merrick like he's sentient, like he's a person. And, you know, it's it's in a conniving like patronizing way but everybody else is looking at him as like an animal almost like an interesting specimen and he's like ho ho i'm gonna bring my drunk buddies in to stare at you dude right like talking directly to him uh but so so treves is setting up the quarters for merrick getting him established upstairs at the hospital and kind of being secretive, keeping him away from the other doctors and nurses for the most part, even this is going to like be his own pet project. But it's really interesting. It's like a mad scientist vibe. Like I think this movie intentionally evokes Frankenstein, for example, in a lot of ways that scene where he kind of reveals him on the stage reminded me of, isn't there a uh, iconic Frankenstein scene where he like reveals him to the uh, the other scientists and just the way that he's kind of locked up there and very precarious with him and who can see him and know about him and stuff. Yeah, I saw parallels with that as well as some other very old school horror movies. Have you ever heard of Burke and Hare, Dan? No. Okay, so what this felt a lot like to me was the story of Burke and Hare, who were these two grave robbers in Victorian England. Because back in the day, the only way you could get cadavers for medical schools was if somebody was executed for a crime. They could be sentenced to dissection. That was the like ultimate humiliation that not only would you be killed, but your body would be cut up by a scientist. So there came to be this black market for fresh corpses among 
doctors and medical students because there were only so many people being murdered by the state. So there was a dearth of these bodies that they needed to be able to study. So there were some people who struck up unsavory relationships between the people who needed the bodies and the people who knew where to get the bodies. Oh, man. So Burke and Hare were these lower-class bums, basically, who set up a business relationship with a doctor named Dr. Knox that they were going to, in a clandestine way, procure bodies for Dr. Knox. I think it started with them, like, robbing fresh graves... But then they just straight up started killing people, like homeless people or crazy people, anybody they could find that they thought wasn't going to be missed. They would bump them off and walk the body across town to the doctor's back door. And they actually killed like 16 people this way. This is a true story. This is real. This really happened. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, but this is definitely the vibe I was getting between Bites and Treves, where, mm. in a way, they both need each other, and they're both involved in these shady dealings, but you have one character who's like this highbrow, learned member of upper-class society, and this other guy who's just this gross, lower-class bum with a shit-eating grin, and... I don't know. That's that's the connection that my mind went to. Also, maybe a little bit more surface level for me would be Jekyll and Hyde. Mm. We've got the two halves of a person who is a sophisticated doctor, but also he's like a lech who gives in to his base instinct. And I think Lynch is attracted to that kind of relationship, as I've kind of already mentioned, that like this dichotomy of grotesque and upstanding has been in every single Lynch work that I've seen. But Treves realizes that sooner or later he's going to need to get approval for his project from somebody higher up than himself. Uh, he's got a boss at the hospital named Francis Cargom. Everybody always calls him Cargom. But that's like a middle name and a last name, I guess. Uh, hmm. He's played by John Gielgud, who was a famous British actor who, this was 1980, this was like one of his later roles, but he had been acting since the 20s. And he was apparently part of a acting dynasty. Members of his family having acted from like back in the historical days of the British theater. Interesting. I don't think I'd seen him before, or at least not known it. It was not a name that had rung a bell for me, but I watched this with my dad, and he was very familiar with John Gielgud. I guess his name is brought up in similar circles as Laurence Olivier, which is a name that I recognize. Yeah, definitely. And Cargom is reluctant to let Merrick stay at the hospital because he says, We don't house incurables here. Obviously, if somebody's been deformed since birth, you can't really do anything about that. So we can't help this guy. So clear out the bed to 
try to win him over, Treves starts coaching Merrick to kind of parrot phrases. Like, we learn that Merrick can talk, but at this point it's kind of up in the air whether it's mostly imitation. You know, how much is really going on upstairs? And at first, Cargom scoffs. Like, oh, you just taught him to say that. But then Merrick busts out the 23rd Psalm and is able to recite it from memory. Which Treve says is not one of the things that he taught him to say. And this is a big dramatic moment where Cargom is won over. But part of me wonders, you know, what if Treves just did teach him the whole thing and the plan was, okay, we're going to walk out of the room and once we get outside, then you say the thing and that's going to be the big punch that gets him. <laughs> Interesting. Like, it's it's all an elaborate act, yeah. At least at that point, I was still wondering. But as we've mentioned, the whole movie is... Merrick being revealed to us, and we come to find that he does have a mind of his own and a voice of his own. Uh, at one point, Cargom writes up an op-ed about the elephant man living at the hospital, and this goes out in the newspapers, and suddenly all of English high society is abuzz with news of this, you know, anatomical oddity living at the hospital. So this is just more of the theme being developed of the parallels of Treves kind of being a freak show showman in his own right, uh, because famous people start coming to call on Merrick. Uh, the first of these is an actress whose name is Madge Kendall. She's like a highlight of the Shakespearean English stage of the day. And she actually comes to visit at the hospital room and gives Merrick a portrait of herself. And they even act out a scene from Romeo and Juliet and she kisses him. So that whole scene, I was wondering how far it was going to go. And I don't know if it went that far in real life. It's very interesting. And the movie dips its toes into it. Certainly it's like a thematic core of the film, but I feel like it doesn't really explore it as much as I was kind of curious about. But like, what is the motivation and the reaction of the high class world? Like, why are they fascinated with him? It's like this performative act of dignity. And how real is it and how fake is it? And it definitely leaves you wondering. It's like, on the one hand, they're treating this person who looks as malformed as anyone for no fault of his own, but has like a very pure and admirable spirit and, and honoring that. But on the other hand, there's a, like a kind of a, grimy showiness to it oh look at me i'm so kind and generous that even a guy who looks like this i can act this way doesn't this make me look good 
That's a great point. Yeah. Like, is it self-congratulatory? I, I don't know. There's ways that you could read, like, all sorts of charities that way. That are you really helping the subject of the charity? Or is it patting yourself on the back? Or is it, in a way, both things at once? Right. But by this point, we've seen the Elephant Man in his full glory, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, John Hurt plays Merrick. And what did you know John Hurt from before now, Dan? That's a good question. I mean, I know he's like one of those classic British actors who's in more things than you think. Isn't he one of the Harry Potter actors? Yes, he plays Mr. Ollivander in the Harry Potter movies. Oh, okay. What I most know him from is, like, pretty soon before Jim Henson died, he did a live-action TV show called The Storyteller, which has uh, dramatizations of, like, Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, So somewhat more obscure fairy tales than you are perhaps used to and slightly darker and they all have really great Henson puppetry creating the creatures. So this is one that I watched on VHS tapes when I was young and was really impressed with. But my point is that John Hurt plays the storyteller who I think I read something that he's like half man, half puppet because they, have he's got like a big prosthetic nose and big prosthetic eyebrows um but he still looks pretty human in the storyteller which is maybe not what you could say here because he has got prosthesis galore in the elephant man how would you describe his appearance i mean it's an absolutely astonishing bit of i guess you call it makeup work it's it's like prosthetics basically like it inflates his head in many dimensions and like kind of closes over his the orifices of his face like his eyes and his mouth and his nose some and it kind of twists his mouth some and it's not at all like symmetrical in the way that we think of facial features being and to add on to it his body is very misshapen and hunched and bulging out in different angles and one arm we see mostly covered it's like this it looks almost like a pool noodle dangling out of his arm like this extra thick long arm and the other arm seems normal-ish but it really kind of blows you away like thinking about different non-computer effects I've seen this is like up there in terms of really convincing and moving bit of costuming, makeuping, prosthesis. Yeah, and he goes through a bunch of different environments. Like, he's out in the rain, and just thinking about how they made all this stuff to, like, hold up in the elements. Right. And, like, his hair... Because his head has so many different places. It's like a topographical map. But the hair is, like, all spread over all these hills and valleys of his weird head. Very striking. But Merrick is growing into himself. He's developing some self-confidence 
as these famous people come to call. You know, whatever their motivations may be, they're coming to visit him and they're talking to him and he's becoming known and he's kind of walking with a new swagger. Yeah, and he's not just that, but he's opening up more about himself. You, you get the sense that one of his defense mechanisms was that he just displayed no personality and nothing of his inner self to the outside world. He kept it all shielded within. And really, like, I was choking up. It's like when he starts talking about his mom, for example, and like starts opening up his personality some, it's very moving and very effective as we, as you say, get to know him as he is revealed to us throughout the film. And some of the board members at the hospital are still objecting, like Cargom did earlier, that we can't really have this guy stay here because that's not our mission. We treat people who can get better. So we really got to free up the bed. But while this board meeting is going on, the princess of England walks in. She says she was sent by Queen Victoria herself, who has heard the news of this miraculous individual dwelling at the hospital, and that she just wants to say that she fully supports him staying there and getting the help that he needs. And, of course, that shuts up the critics. And now the elephant man has a queen and a princess in his corner. While this whole series of events is going on, up in his room, Merrick is working on making a model of a cathedral he can see out his window. This made me think a little bit of in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame. Quasimodo has also got models that he makes. And one of them is the cathedral that he lives in, but he's also got like figures of all the people that he interacts with. I think this is a theme of having ugly characters who can still make and appreciate beautiful things. I think that's a very uh, powerful motif that recurs in different media. I also think of like the Phantom of the Opera, something just very theatrical about a twisted figure who can create beauty, even if they themselves are not beautiful. Right, and it, it evokes a very explicit contrast to the viewer. It's an indicator that we need to see beyond the surface level because if a person who's blatantly ugly has appreciation for things that are, are beautiful, then there's probably more that's going on underneath the surface of this individual. Right. I think the very best thing about being ugly is also the very worst, and that's that you can still appreciate beauty. But all throughout this act of the film, the orderly has periodically been bringing people in at night to gawk at Merrick in his room and terrifying both parties in the process. Like, it always scares the crap out of Merrick, but also whoever gets brought up there. It's like, that, no one is really enjoying these interactions except the orderly who's making a few bucks. And this gradually escalates until he brings up an entire mob of... I keep looking for synonyms for, like, 
bums, riffraff, uh, just these, these like, not street urchins, because they're not children, but older than that, just British street people from olden days. <laughs> but he brings them up, and they just go nuts. This big group, which Bites joins in on, so he goes up with this crowd that's going to go see the Elephant Man, and... They just start assaulting Merrick and trashing the room. So something I was sure was going to happen and that really disturbs me when I see it in a film is if you've seen an art project being created over a span of time and then to see that art project get destroyed. I always hate when that happens in a movie. Uh, the one that just tears my heart out <laughs> is in Elf. <laughs> when Will Ferrell makes a model of New York City out of Legos, and then he fights with the fake Santa, and the Santa grabs a pipe and smashes this Lego city. <laughs> and I, it just hurts me to even think about it. And I thought we were going to see that happen to his little model city. Uh, the next morning, we do see that the model is like knocked over but we don't see it happen in the chaos and i i just was really expecting they were going to milk a shot of somebody smashing this like paper craft cathedral yeah it would it would have fit, fit thematically for sure um i think this whole scene of this wanton destruction and humiliation it comes pretty close to like a high point of dignity for the character thus far Write it. And he's like looking at himself dressed up nice and he's like kind of really endearingly and adorably like playing out as if he were at a social encounter with the actress who he has the picture of and is like talking to her as if she's there. Yeah, it's very disturbing. And you're right that this is where things are going to come crashing down. I've talked a couple times in recent weeks about a scenario that just really been on my mind for whatever reason of characters who start out in a lowly position and then for one reason or another are artificially elevated and kind of walking in a new social stratum, a higher status. Uh, I've talked about the beggar who gets led to believe he's the sultan and then gets dumped out in the street again. I talked about that in relation to Paper Towns, but I felt it come to mind again here, where this guy who's lived this horrible life in this very degraded condition uh, and depravity now is being taught that he has value and that he can walk among the princesses, basically. And this is where he's thrown back down into the gutter again. And it's all the more jarring, having occupied that rarefied space. Right, because when we saw him humiliated at the beginning, although it kind of hurt, like we hadn't seen him lifted up. So seeing him pulled back down to these humiliating levels increases its impact for the exact reason you said. And it's it's pretty gross and disturbing. 
Specifically, there's this, like, old, gross guy who has two prostitutes with him. And he's paying them to kiss him. But then he brings them up to see the Elephant Man, and he starts making them kiss the Elephant Man. And that's just very gross for everybody. It's gross yeah. for Merrick. It's gross for the girls. Uh, yeah, very upsetting. But gradually the mob breaks up and heads their separate ways, leaving the Elephant Man in a crumpled heap. And Bites emerges and, you know, rubs his hands villainously, actually abducts Merrick out into the night again. This is a segment that didn't really work for me too much. I didn't really see what having him be re-abducted and brought back to his freak show life did that the humiliation scene did not accomplish. And I think this is something they made up for the movie, too. So uh, what, what was your take on this? Well, I was reading about it, and I think this did happen, but the timing is, like, different. That he was at one point abandoned in continental Europe and had to take the train to get back to the hospital. But it wasn't all one exhibitor. They kind of condensed them down into one character. I don't think this is entirely made up, but I think the timing of it is off. Interesting. Okay. It's like all kind of blurred together. But Bites does take him to like France, or I, I think I read it's Belgium, but people are speaking French. Okay. And exhibiting him there, Bites just gets nasty to him all over again. <laughs> to the point that he locks Merrick in a monkey cage out in the elements, and I was struck by how disturbed the monkey seems to be. Like, it's a baboon or something, and it really looks like it does not want to be in the cage with John Hurt in all this freaky makeup. So not really a good situation for anybody in this cage. Yeah, I mean, he probably didn't want to be in the cage at all, but... Definitely seemed agitated by his new guest. Yeah, you could be right. But in the night, Merrick is set free by the other freak performers. Kind of their leader seems to be Kenny Baker, the little person who was also inside R2-D2 in 1977. Mm. Well, I guess this uh, this movie was 1980, so that would have been... Um, uh, the Empire Strikes Back, but I was like, oh, wait a minute, that's uh, that's R2-D2. Good pull. So now Merrick has to make his way back to England again. And you're right, that this is another moment where there's like back and forth, where I feel like they could have made it flow a little bit better. It's kind of like at the start where uh, he goes from Bites' freak show to the hospital, back to the freak show, back to the hospital... And now it's just happening again. But now he's the worse for wear. And there's an iconic scene where he's at a London train station. And he's just arrived back in town. And he's once again in his burlap sack getup that covers his face. But first a group of children chase him down. And then 
a bunch of other people group around him and he's like running through the train station and they finally corner him and he bellows out, I am not an animal. I am a human being, which I think is on at least a few of the posters of this film. Yeah, it's it's like the signature line of the film. If you, It might have even been, I don't know if it was on the AFI top 100 movie quotes of all time list. I'm sure it was one of the nominees, but yeah. But to me, this whole segment is one of the more biopic-y moments of like, I don't know, just like adopting a message, adopting its theme on its sleeve as if there had been any doubt thus far what it was. And, you know, it's well acted and well shot and, and all that, but I, I didn't find it nearly as stirring as plenty of other moments in the film, despite it being so iconic. No, I think you're right. I was waiting for it to happen and it didn't have the impact I was expecting. So in some ways, this is the I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore moment. But I think that film network maybe delivered a little more on the promise of having a really significant dramatic line. Right. That was a great one for me. Definitely different, but yeah. Finally, Merrick gets reunited with Treves at the hospital where Treves determines that he's dying. He doesn't tell Merrick that, but that's the conclusion that he comes to, that he doesn't have much longer to live. In one of my favorite final scenes, everybody goes to the theater to see... Madge Kendall, the actress who sent Merrick the picture, perform. I really like this scene because it's another moment where we get the surreality. We see this play kind of through Merrick's eyes and how to describe it. There's like layers on layers with different opacity all these images layered over each other and blending into each other. And there's like creative matting and masking. I was thinking about like, if I had to do this in a video editing project, what Mm. would all the different pieces that you need be? Right. But it's accompanied by this instrumental music. And I found it really captivating. I liked it too. It's another lynchian moment that's like screaming of artifice but it it works as a reflection on merrick's past because he was himself a performer in a very different way and seeing that like stirs within him like i i see this as us kind of experiencing the play the way that he does and like the surges of the emotions and like him for once being on the other side of the thrill the other side of the performer-observer relationship and just how stirring that is for him. And the movie really emphasizes the the surreality and the, the emotional impact of that with these striking visual effects that you mentioned. I also felt like it played a little bit with the power of the movies as a medium. Hmm. It's like, what if you had never seen a film before, and now this is the first film that you see? And I, I don't know. I, 
I read it maybe a little bit as like a love letter to the power of a movie. Mm-hmm. I can see that, yeah. Like, let this let my first uh, studio feature wash over you. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but another thing that David Lynch does frequently is his movies are often about the making of or people's relationships with movies. Now, Twin Peaks doesn't have that really, but Mulholland Drive, is that's all that that's about. And I think that that is an astute observation. I, I would be surprised if that wasn't at least a little bit on his mind as he was making this. Also, I only noticed this the second time I watched it, but this is kind of another on-the-nose moment. In the play, there's like an ogre in a cage in a cave. Mm. And we kind of see Merrick's gaze linger on that dude for a moment. And then later on, when they're walking home from the theater, he says something to the effect of, I really thought the ogre would never get out of the cave. Oh, I didn't even think of that, but that is pretty on the nose, isn't it? Yeah. So, I don't know, your your opinion of this movie might change if you rewatch it. That could well be true of any other movie that we've covered, and this is just the only one that I've happened to rewatch before we talk about it. Before they leave the theater, Madge Kendall dedicates the performance to Merrick, who is sitting up in the princess's box at this theater, and he gets a standing ovation. Basically, there's nowhere that he can go from here. This is like... He's made it. This is his big moment. And so now he has to go home and die. <laughs> what else can you do? You've peaked in life. So he he walks home. He like puts the finishing touch on his cathedral and says his goodnight to Treves. And he stretches out to sleep on the bed in his room. And we, we haven't talked about this yet, but... Something that gets commented on a few times in the film is that he can't sleep lying down because his head is too big. Uh, that I guess it'll, like, wrench itself right off his neck. Or he won't be able to get up again and he'll, like, stew in his own juices. Right, and I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the film. Where there's this strong element of, like, childhood, birth, and innocence kind of corrupted for reasons that are outside of the soul of the person or kind of this just corruption of nature that he sees as a thing that's kind of missing from him. But he lies down and while dreaming of his mother, he dies in his sleep. I uh, pulled a line from Dr. Treves's book, which is one of the primary inspirations for the movie and Treves said Merrick often said to me that he wished he could lie down to sleep like other people he must with some determination have made the experiment thus it came about that his death was due to the desire that had dominated his life the pathetic but hopeless desire to be like other people so that's not in the film itself, but it might as well be. Interesting, yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is, yeah. And that's The Elephant Man from 1980. 
It was nominated for a slew of Academy Awards, didn't end up winning any. But one thing that people thought it was snubbed for is that back in 1980, there was no Academy Award for makeup. I mean, that I can see why people would have been upset by that, because what they did to the John Hurt, the fact that, to my knowledge, this is completely analog and just pure makeup and prosthesis with no post-production manipulation. It's, it's, it's astonishing. It really is like it deserved recognition for sure. And so the very next year, the Academy made that an official award. (laughs) Although I think it's worth noting that another good circus movie I considered picking is the seven faces of Dr. Lau which I think is from like 1962, uh, 1964. But that one actually did receive a like special achievement award for makeup effects. So why they didn't just do that with Elephant Man, I'm not sure. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Something I found interesting while reading about this film is that it was executive produced by Mel Brooks. And his involvement was actually downplayed, like it's not on any of the posters or anything, to avoid people mistaking that the film was a comedy. Oh, interesting, yeah. But it sounds like he was pretty invested in making it a good movie, and like he had some creative spoons stirring the soup. Uh, Anne Bancroft plays the actress Madge Kendall, And she is and probably was married to Mel Brooks. Mrs. Robinson. Right. And there's a good line from Mel Brooks that apparently at one point they screened the movie for like studio execs. And their feedback was, well, that was pretty good, but you should get rid of the weird surreal scenes that are just kind of randomly in there. (laughs) and don't really fit the tone of the rest of everything. And Mel Brooks said, We are involved in a business venture. We screen the film to bring you up to date as to the status of that venture. Do not misconstrue this as our soliciting the input of raging primitives. (laughs) Oh, what a line. So just the ultimate cinephile clapback, I guess, from Mel Brooks. What did he say? Raging primitives? That's Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, we're not soliciting the input of raging primitives. We're going to make this movie the way my buddy David Lynch wants to, I guess. So, now that you've watched it, Dan, what are your thoughts? Things we haven't said yet. Good things, bad things, striking things. What did you think of Anthony Hopkins' performance? I liked it. And... I'm trying to articulate quite why I liked it so much, and I I hope it's more than just the beard and the top hat. Uh, But I I think the most powerful moment is when he sees the Elephant Man for the first time, and you just get this slow zoom in on his face, and he's like crying at how just disturbing it is, and like sad and striking. I think there's some powerful acting in that moment. But overall, I thought 
he was good. I'm generally a fan of Anthony Hopkins. I like when he shows up in things. Um, in the Antonio Banderas Zorro movie where he plays the old Zorro who trains him. Mm-hmm. Or in the Beowulf movie from 2007, the like motion capture animated one where he plays the King Hrothgar. I liked that. Uh, I'm trying to think of a Anthony Hopkins movie where I didn't like his performance, and there's not many. Uh, but what about you? What were your thoughts? Yeah, he's got a good screen presence. Um, I don't know. I I walked away wondering if there were some potential hidden depths to the character that he didn't bring, because he plays it as a very straightforward role. Like... There's the one scene where he basically says, am I a good man? Am I doing the right thing by bringing him into high society and trying to give him dignity, but also essentially making him a different kind of freak? And maybe I would be rewarded with a rewatch and paying close attention to his, his acting, because I know he's a skilled actor, but I didn't feel any of those reservations, and I was kind of missing that. Like, I feel like that's such an important part of the film, but it, it just didn't click with me as I was watching on him. Well, to that point, that's another moment that's very on the nose when he pulls his wife aside and says, am I a good person? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, also, like shortly before that, the head nurse at the hospital confronts Treves and says, you're bringing all these rich people in to gawk at the elephant man. You're no better than that carnival barker. You're just, you just have a freak show of your own. And it's like, oh, wow, you just came out and said it. I thought more striking than Hopkins was John Hurt as the elephant man, as, as John Merrick. Um, I, I typically think when there are movies like this, there's it's like about one it's, you see this a lot in biopics about one sort of person who has something extreme about them and then about another person's relationship with them. I typically find myself more struck by the secondary person in terms of like acting and engagement. And the first person, it's like the, the main central focus of the story can be maybe overacted or it's just memorable more so than good. But I actually thought John Hurt here was really amazing. I thought through what must have been a cumbersome makeup and prosthesis, he conveyed so much humanity. And to me, where this movie shines is when we just get to see this person come alive. And and so much of that is from the way that Hurt carries and projects this character with this kind of repressed dignity. I, I was blown away. I thought it was an awesome acting job. Yeah, I like his role quite a bit too. I think maybe my favorite single element is, we say it so often on the podcast, the vibe here. Uh, Dan has talked about how in some of the movies that he likes, uh, he feels that you could step in and just walk around in the world and like take in, say, a party in... Everybody wants some. Well, uh, Anthony Hopkins walking around that carnival at the start of this movie. That's a place that I would want to uh, may- not live there, 
in the Greatest Showman episode, you said you wouldn't want to hang out with a clown every day. <laughs> uh, but certainly I would visit this weird space where everything is humming and hissing and there's all these gas lights and calliopes. I think the motif of the steam and the hissing is really pronounced. And I don't know exactly what it was trying to capture, but I know it was there on purpose because we see it over and over again. And sometimes in things that are just unrelated to the plot, like this one weird segment where we see these people at like an, I don't even know what it was, but these, these men who are like pushing some steam device. And it always seems like we see the steam as we are seeing kind of this early industrial age masses being like seedy and gross in their new modernity. And I kind of feel like that was the gist of what it was going for, but I agree. There's there's something very striking about this steam age uh, and, and how that's shown. That theme is certainly there, that modernity is knocking at the door. So as far as like not-so-good things holding it back for me, um, some of the themes are addressed pretty on the nose, and I've noticed it more in the second watch that I just completed. So... Maybe that comes with the trappings of being a biopic, but one other demerit I'll give it is that it might be just a hair too long. It's a little over two hours, and I don't know that it necessarily needed needed to be. The plot summary that I wrote out was shorter than most of the other movies that we've covered. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. It could have been trimmed a little bit. I already mentioned, I think, the re-kidnapping and escape for me didn't really deepen the movie that much and and could have been trimmed pretty easily maybe find another place to get in that line if you want that line um although i do think it's interesting that that's a moment i'm kind of contradicting myself here less so the kidnapping and more so when he's in the streets of london it's like makes clear that even in his renewed dignity that it's not like a happy ever after and society is fixed type of situation. That his fundamentally grotesque and inhuman looking nature, at least on the outside, we know we've come to learn that on the inside there's much more than that. But on the outside, that hasn't gone away and people are still reacting to that, even if other people have accepted it and looked past it. Um, I guess I just cited that as a positive, but my point being, I do think there is some redundancy in this film that could have been trimmed some. I I did think overall that the script was quite good for much of it. It does dip into being on the nose, but I I like the dialogue and I like just the the story of it and the the tone that much of it is told in. Um, Yeah, I'm ultimately going to give it a good rating when we finally pull back the curtain. I think another downside for me, or at least something that I was scratching my chin about, is that the character of John Merrick is basically faultless. It's like there is no character flaws to him. He He's basically pretty saintly. And... 
I, it struck me that this is, <laughs> in its own way, also dehumanizing to him. It's like, it's forcing us, the viewer, to do the thing that Anthony Hopkins and higher society is doing of projecting this pure goodness upon this person who's been in, in an unfortunate circumstance in life. And by doing so makes us in the same place where we're projecting this goodness on this character and not seeing really any depth or I don't know, not giving him the full complexity of humanity, not seeing him complexly, as I said frequently during the Paper Towns episode. Um, that in fact, famously, it, it, this movie got really good reviews, but Roger Ebert gave it a bad review for basically the, that exact reason. It diminishes what the movie has to say about people in general, but even about this character by having the certain shallow gentleness to everything he does. And it's an interesting point, although I think the movie moves you because he is so pure, like from an emotional experience. I don't know if I would want him to be like dark beyond that. I, I don't know. How treacherous it is to believe that a man is more than an elephant. <laughs> uh, well done. No, I think that's really insightful. So at this point now, we've seen all that we can see. Uh, the elephant in the room has been addressed. And are we ready to rate? I am ready to rate. Okay. Well, I know what I'm going to rate it. Uh, what are you going to rate it, Dan? <laughs> Was the Elephant Man good? So I'm on the record not being a fan of biopics. And indeed, this is very much a biopic and even does some of the things I typically don't like about biopics. That said, film is a visual medium. And I think the reason that this film succeeds for me is because of just how much it emphasizes very visually the core things about the character and his relationship with the world and lets us feel it in that way. And seeing him come alive, seeing the dignity emerge from him and really having that in the visual language of the film, how it's initially a horror movie and we see him as more monstrous and inhuman and gradually we see him more and more as as a person that that we should respect that that has value that has dignity i think it's really well done and i think it's really engaging and it and it moved me i i was choked up a few times i think it's a very good movie i'm going to give it a very good rating i'm going to give it a 6 out of 8 i like david lynch in general and i like what he does here it's kind of his toned down version of his weirdness, but with enough weirdness on the fringes to make you feel it and and make you wonder a little bit about what exactly it's trying to say. It's not a perfect film. It still goes down some biopic redundancy and tropes, but I liked it and I'm, I, I think it's very good. Well, that's very good to hear. Yeah, in a way it's like Eraserhead light. Eraserhead for the masses, but I quite like this film, and 
I am going to give it a 7 out of 8, an exceptionally good, just kind of dumping that here at the outset. Uh, my thoughts arriving at this point uh, were as follows, that I love the start of the movie, that circus scene as uh, Anthony Hopkins is wandering around through the sheets and drawing nearer, and, you, you know, he, the elephant man is near but not clear, and just this sense of menace and mystery as this creepy carnival music plays. And maybe I lost a little bit of that allure at points, because there is some redundancy. There are some points where it drags a little bit. Um, maybe some moments where the themes are on the nose. But then it will get buoyed by something. John Hurt does give a really strong performance. And just the costume or the makeup or all these prostheses at work, you can't say enough good things about how that was created out of scratch. It's really convincing and visually striking and off-putting. Then it all ends with this scene of the theatrical performance, maybe as a symbol for this movie, maybe as a symbol for all movies, washes over Merrick, but also we the viewers. And it's like, look at what a movie can do. Look at what a theater piece can do. And in a way, you know, it's an equalizer, and everybody who watches it is on the same footing, but we also all have our own perspectives. I think maybe the rating has been tarnished a little by my second watch, and it might come down a little bit, uh, say, at our 50th episode evaluation where we tweak our ratings. But for right now, it sits at a 7 for me. I, I think I will revisit it, and, and we'll see what time holds. Well, I'm glad... You got a lot out of it. I was really glad to revisit it. And I, I encourage people to go to see this one, to dip your toe into David Lynch if you haven't thus far, because he's a good and very different storyteller. And this movie is comfortably conventional, but also has its own stroke of weirdness to it. So we are drawing near to the caboose of our circus train. But we're still in circus month. Yeah. Dan, what is rolling down the tracks next for us? So, as I'm sure anyone who was watching movies in the 2000s knows, in the wake of first Harry Potter and then Twilight, studios were scrambling to come up with the next young adult series property. What was the big one going to be? Oh, let's do the Golden Compass from the Philip Pullman trilogy. Or let's make Narnia. Or, oh, let's buy out the rights to this or that young adult series. The Hunger Games was another obviously really successful one. But then you also have the, the Rick Riordan uh, Lightning Thief series that completely tanked. And... There was a bunch of these, and I, I just got to admire the geniuses who said, hey, what if we did the circus version of this, and what if we cast John C. Riley as the main adult? 
because wouldn't that just be the thing that brings in the masses? Let's make a uh, a supernatural YA teen story, and and why not have John C. Riley in there? So I am going to be asking us to watch and discuss Cirque du Freak, the Vampire's Assistant, from two thousand nine which has not very good reviews, but I have always been intrigued by, and I'm going to keep an open mind about. Brian, have you seen this movie? I haven't seen it, um, but guess who's done a Cirque du Freak podcast episode? <laughs> has uh, Buzzed On Movies? Buzzed On Movies covered Cirque du Freak, <laughs> but uh, we will do our best to uh, hold up to their example. I, I have not seen the movie. I thought you would like it because I know you're you're a John C. Riley guy. I am a John C. Riley guy, and I I think yeah, it should be fun. I'm I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. So circus month continues. There we go. Circus circus month. Join us next time, guys, on the goods. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us again. Mm-hmm.